Hello and welcome to The Whole Health Cure, a space for trustworthy, science-based information on how you can live healthier and longer through the way you eat, move, think, and recover. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist, a physician, scientist, and lifestyle medicine pioneer with over 25 years of experience in patient-centered clinical care. In honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, our conversation today is about prevention among people who are high risk for breast cancer. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Our guest is Dr. Preeti Sutendra, who's a breast cancer medical oncologist at Ohio State, the James Cancer Hospital, and has been in practice almost 15 years. She has expertise in seeing patients who may be at high risk for developing breast cancer due to genetic or other predispositions. She's also been involved with American College of Lifestyle Medicine since 2022 and is the incoming co-chair for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine Breast Cancer Subcommittee. Dr. Sutendra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Berquist. I'm really honored to be here today. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you, and especially given this time of year and this being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So thank you for sharing your information and knowledge with us. Dr. Sutendra, tell us a little bit about what you do, how you, how patients find you, and what puts them at high risk. Yeah, so I see patients who have breast cancer, who need active treatment, but the other part of my job is to see women who may be at high risk for developing breast cancer at some point during their lifetime. There's a lot of different ways that patients find us. Sometimes it's through their gynecologist or family doctor who notices there may be a strong family history of cancer. Other times it's through mammography. So when women go for their annual mammograms, a lot of institutions or radiology practices will do a quick questionnaire to try to assess their risk. And if their numbers or there's any red flags on that questionnaire, they may get referred to a high-risk clinic to discuss further. And when you meet your patients, what are ways to help them assess what their risks are once you identify their high risk? So the first thing we want to do is rule out any genetic predisposition So for a woman with a strong family history of cancer, which could be either on their maternal or mother's side or paternal father's side, we want to make sure that they're not carrying a gene that would make their risk higher than average. If their genetic testing comes back negative, then there are a couple different risk model calculators that we can use to try to determine what their risk is. Unlike all other cancers, we're actually very fortunate because there are these risk model calculations we can do and things we can do to lower their risk or monitor women more closely who may be at high risk. I know the majority of your patients are women, but what percentage are male? In the high-risk clinic, the majority that are male are coming there for genetic testing, because there's a a family history of cancer. So any male breast cancer in the family is an indication that someone should have genetic testing. Of all the breast cancers diagnosed, about 1% do occur in men. So it's not impossible. Men also have breast tissue, although certainly not as much. So they are at risk for developing breast cancer with or without a genetic predisposition. 
for the men that then do carry a genetic predisposition, we would follow them to make sure they're having their appropriate mammograms and screening and make sure they're being evaluated for any other cancers that may be associated with a particular gene. And when you identify people are high risk, there's some preventive options that you start to offer people. How do you decide what to start offering the patients? That's a great question. The couple risk numbers we look at are their short-term risk, which is the risk of developing breast cancer within the next five years, and then someone's lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. The lifetime risk one is the cutoff of the average woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer is about 12% in the United States. For women considered high risk at a number more than 20% is what qualifies women to discuss supplemental screening. So that would be a breast MRI in addition to an annual mammogram. The short-term risk or the five-year risk is what we use to determine whether a medication intervention may be appropriate to help bring that risk number down. In in terms of medications, what are the options that you offer? So the two most commonly used medications are tamoxifen and raloxifene. These are both estrogen-blocking medications, and the reason that they are effective is that about 70 to 80% of all breast cancers are estrogen-driven. Unfortunately, they do not protect against the estrogen-negative breast cancers, and right now we don't have a medication to help prevent against that specific subtype of cancers. And what's the risk reduction with each of those options? It's about 30 to 50%. So if someone's risk in the next five years is 5%, then it would come down to about 25 to 3%. And how long would they take it? They take it for five years. And how about side effects? Side effects are similar to any hormonal changes in the body. So... Hot flashes are common, like cramps, can affect menstrual periods. Tamoxifen is used for premenopausal women who haven't gone through menopause yet. Raloxifene is usually our preferred medication for postmenopausal women, tends to have less side effects than tamoxifen does. The rare but serious side effects of tamoxifen is that it does increase the risk of blood clots. It can make the periods irregular, menses irregular, and can cause uterine cancer. Yeah, a lot of things to weigh, a lot of pros and cons in the decision-making. Absolutely. And you also talk to your patients about some lifestyle approaches. And what are things that you recommend? So the American Institute of Cancer Research, or AICR, has published recommendations for what they consider evidence-based cancer prevention lifestyle. Some of those things include maintaining a healthy body weight, being physically active, having a predominantly plant-based diet, avoiding red meat, processed meat, limiting alcohol intake. So those are some of the lifestyle interventions that we recommend as well. 
And within each one, I, I want to go through them a little bit to get a little bit more guidance for people. I know sometimes we kind of broadly categorize physical activity, but what does that look like and how do people um, implement that into their lives? So maybe we can start with body weight. Is there a range that's recommended? Is it more weight-based? Is it based on body composition or how's that approached? I think that's still under a lot of research. And before we had more understanding of body composition, a lot of the studies were based on BMI or body mass index, which is a ratio of somebody's height to weight. But now we know that two people with the same BMI might have very different body composition, where one person may have a lot more muscle mass and another person with the same BMI may have a lot more body fat percentage. So I think as research continues, we're trying to tease apart how much of that is body composition. And it seems to be that that's actually more important than the actual BMI number. So body fat percentage, lean muscle mass, resting metabolic rates are all go into that consideration for somebody's weight. (laughs) Yeah. And the predominantly plant-based diets, is there any guidance on how strict a person needs to be, whether they can incorporate X percentage of plants and some non-plant foods in their diet? Is there any guidance around that? I think it's variable, I think most of the studies say to stick with a predominantly plant-based diet, but of course the definition of that varies by different studies that are done. But in general, a plant-based diet means getting enough servings of fruit and vegetable per day, minimizing the intake of meat, processed foods, added sugar, things like that. And with the exercise piece, so this is where I think, I mean, there's just so much variation, anything from just move and don't be sedentary on up to guidance around the level of intensity of exercise sure, and the role that that plays. So maybe we'll first just talk about just the gain from not being sedentary and then we can go into more detail. Or how do you frame it when you present it to patients? So when I'm trying to give a very specific recommendation, the general recommendation is 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. For most people, that looks like about 30 minutes of exercise five times a week. And I think moderate intensity would be something like a brisk walk, a bike ride, Vigorous activity would be something like playing a recreational sport, soccer, tennis, a dance class, and then light exercise would be a gentle stroll or light errands, housework, things like that. And you recommend the moderate. Are there times where you recommend other forms of exercise? So I think strength training is really important. That's what helps keep our bones healthy and maintain our bone density as we get older. So actually, the older we get, the more important strength training is. 
and weight-bearing exercise. That also helps increase our muscle mass. So as we talked about body composition before, cardio exercises certainly are helpful to get our heart rate up, to burn calories. But if we have more muscle mass, our body can burn those calories much more efficiently than if we have an excess of fat in our body composition. And then in terms of the duration or intensity of exercise, I think it's also variable in terms of what we recommend. I think the 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity should be a minimum, but there are some studies showing that more vigorous activity provide a greater benefit for breast cancer prevention. And with the diet piece and the exercise, is there an understanding of how they're helping Obviously, there's a general understanding that these are beneficial, yet, you know, there's also a lot of recent work around how it's directly working in oncology as opposed to just generalized wellness or helping other chronic diseases. Can you speak a little bit about how the plant-based diets or how the exercise is making a difference for cancer prevention specifically? Sure. Specifically for breast cancer, and most people diagnosed with breast cancer, most women diagnosed are postmenopausal. I think the average age in the United States for a diagnosis is around 61. So most women, almost all women, have gone through menopause by then. So after menopause, it's interesting our body's hormones change. So before menopause, Our ovaries are the main producer of estrogen in the body. After menopause, even though it feels like we don't have any estrogen, our body is still making estrogen, just at very low quantities. And most of that estrogen is made in our adipose or fatty tissue. So our body has the ability to convert other hormones we have into estrogen in that fatty tissue. So the more adipose tissue a person is carrying on their body, the more estrogen their body has and could potentially fuel any developing breast cancer cells. Mm -hmm. And so the diet and exercise presumably are just reducing the adiposity. I think that's part of it. There's also a lot of research into how diet plays into insulin-like growth factor and what effect that has on somebody's endogenous estrogen levels and any potential tumor growth. There's also a lot of research going on into how diet and exercise play into this concept of inflammation in the body as well as our immune system and whether that is also playing a role in lowering the risk of developing breast cancer or any cancer in the future. Mm -hmm. In terms of just modifying routines and tracking, like how do you help people along the way to know if they're being successful in their preventive strategy? I think that is a hard one because some of these things are Well, most of these things are all dependent on a person individually to keep track of, you know, how much they're exercising and how vigorously they're exercising. 
I know there are some programs where patients enroll and they can, they do kind of serial body composition measurements to try to determine whether there's been an effect on body fat percentage as they go through these lifestyle changes. But as with anything, it's prevention. So there's nothing there to actually monitor. It's preventing something that may happen in the future. There's no model that reassesses risk based on like any changes that they've made. The one model, which is called the IBIS or the Tyrocusic breast cancer model, it does take into account somebody's height and weight in terms of determining risk, but it does not take into account any other body composition or diet or physical activity aspects. So unfortunately, we don't have a good calculator for incorporating those lifestyle factors that go into risk. And you had mentioned with the tamoxifen and raloxifene about a 30 to 50% risk reduction. Can you talk a little bit about the amount of risk reduction a person can accomplish either through dietary changes, exercise changes, or the combination? So I think a lot of these studies are hard to execute because you're relying on somebody's perception or reporting of physical activity in a certain way. So one person may feel like they have done vigorous physical activity, and for another person, that may be considered moderate physical activity. And as you alluded to before, someone who is sticking to a 50% plant-based diet may report the same as someone who does a 100% plant-based diet. So there are some variables that are just very difficult to tease out. But what I thought was interesting is many years ago, there was actually a study done in France looking at dose intensity of exercise. And specifically, they found that vigorous recreational activity not just all physical activity, but recreational activity was associated with the most risk reduction in terms of a breast cancer recurrence. And the interesting thing is they included women who may be at higher risk of developing breast cancer. So women who were taking hormone replacement therapy, which is a risk factor, women who had never given birth to a child, they were nulliparous, that is also a risk factor. And even despite those risk factors, the physical activity was still able to overcome the increased risk with those with the vigorous recreational activity. And roughly, did the study mention an amount of dose that would help overcome that? So in their study, it was more than, I think, five and a half hours a week, which is pretty intense. (laughs) And I think also what they defined as vigorous physical activity was very vigorous. So what they described was when we use the term METS in terms of how much energy a certain activity burns, their cutoff was nine which is usually what we see for, again, things like sports, like 
playing soccer or tennis or a dance class, rock climbing, things like that. What I have seen is typically in the U.S., a Mets level of six, greater than six is considered vigorous. So they used a pretty high threshold, but they did note that one of the limitations of the study is you're depending on women to self-report how vigorous the activity was or wasn't. So they do think that some of the activity in that vigorous category may have actually been moderate. Yeah. And besides the exercise and the diet, are there other preventive measures that are being explored? So alcohol is a known risk factor for developing breast cancer. More than one alcoholic drink a day is the cutoff that increases the risk of breast cancer. So certainly limiting alcohol intake is important. More than one per night or how frequently in a week? More than one per day, every day of the week. Okay. Yeah, I know there's a lot of controversy around alcohol intake and how much is okay. There's obviously none that's good, but how much is okay? And I think one of the misconceptions and the concept about red wine and cardiac health and some of the substances that may be protective of the heart or help lower cholesterol levels Those same substances can be found in grapes and cranberries, blueberries. So we don't recommend starting to drink red wine for somebody's health, just to know that there are plenty non-alcoholic sources of cardiac protective substances. Yes, definitely. Any other preventive measure that you recommend? I think the red meat, processed meat, there was, you know, a few years ago, studies showing that that increased the risk of colon cancer, some studies showing that that also may increase the risk of breast cancer as well. And when you had mentioned just the adiposity being a possible link, it made me wonder, are there studies now on intermittent fasting for prevention? I know there are some for treatment trials but anything for prevention amongst high-risk people? I have not come across. There may be none that we have open currently at Ohio State. But yes, there are some trials going on with women with breast cancer to see if that helps. And I think that also is related to that insulin-like growth factor. And if there is a prolonged time of fasting, if it can help bring those levels down. I'm not sure if there's so many diet studies, you know, even with the keto diets, the Mediterranean diets, the plant-based diets. So I'm not sure if a diet without intermittent fasting, but that did not have any processed foods and was plant-based, I suspect would be very similar in outcome to the intermittent fasting diets where the diet itself was much more liberal. Yeah, or in the spirit of prevention, do all of the above. Or all of the above. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else that you counsel your patients on when you meet them that's prevention-oriented that should be on people's radar? I think just general awareness. So 
Family history is really important and knowing what your family history is, is important for us to determine. That plays a huge role in what somebody's risk is and for us to know whether genetic testing would be appropriate or not. The other thing is being aware of what's called breast density. So on a mammogram, and most states are required to report breast density, which refers to how many glands are in the breast. So the breasts are made up of adipose or fatty tissue, and then all what we call the fibroglandular tissue, which are the milk ducts, milk globules, and that's where cancers develop. Those fibroglandular parts of the breast are white on a mammogram, but abnormalities are white as well. So the analogy that I use, if you're old enough to know this, is it's like, where's Waldo on a mammogram? Or for the younger people listening, it's trying to find a snowflake in a snowstorm. So you have to be able to, to hone in on that. Mammographers have a, a very difficult job reading all those mammograms every day. But in women who do have very dense breasts, sometimes MRI or even ultrasound is used as a supplement to help get a better look at the breasts in a different way. It's really encouraging, you know, just talking about all the various ways, because I think sometimes there are certain things you can't change, right? You can't change the genetics, you can't change the family history, but everything that you're mentioning is very modifiable, you know, whether it's the medication plus minus the lifestyle choices that people make that can all make a big difference. Right. I completely agree. There's a lot of risk factors for breast cancer, and sometimes it can seem like you know, I have a family history, I'm going to get it one day, can seem very overwhelming and women can feel hopeless or helpless that there's nothing I can do about it. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that a lot of the risk factors are modifiable, like you said, and even the ones that are not modifiable that there are lifestyle factors that can potentially even overcome those non-modifiable risks. And that's such an important point because I think we sometimes forget how much we can do to ultimately affect anything that happens health-wise. So that's, that's great information. Dr. Sutendra, is there anything that you'd like to share that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Anything that you think is really important or even commonly misunderstood by a lot of people you see that you think it would be helpful for people to understand? Yeah, I think probably soy is one of the biggest misconceptions in breast cancer, that soy should not be eaten or should be avoided. And there really is no strong evidence linking soy to the increased risk of breast cancer. I think the concern about soy is that in its unprocessed form, which is soy milk, tofu, edamame, soy is can be helpful and is actually has good health benefits. It's the processed soy that are used a lot in processed foods and snacks that we want to stay away from. 
That's really good advice. I know there's a lot of confusion and that does come up a good bit. So, so thank you for that. Dr. Sutendra, thank you so much for sharing this information. This is great. And thank you for the work that you do. I think we need great doctors and we need people to help with managing breast cancer. And this is such a great month to raise that awareness. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and share it with a friend. Until next time, do something to help improve your whole health naturally. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent.